Good morning. Sermon text this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Hear now the word of God. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And thus far, the reading of God's word, would you pray with me? Our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are truth and your word is truth. We pray that you would give us hearts and minds to receive all that your word tells us and give us lips to return to you the praise, the worship, the honor, and the adoration that you alone deserve. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The date was January 12th, 2007. It was a Friday morning, much like any other Friday morning in the Washington, D.C. metro station, L'Enfant Plaza. Uh, The morning commute was just gearing up. The shoe shine was getting ready to open. The line at the Lotto kiosk was beginning to form. And passengers... Uh, The metro were hustling to and fro, trying not to spill their coffees, which they weren't technically allowed to have on the metro. It was an ordinary day, except for one thing. The ordinary-looking man in jeans and a ball cap playing the violin at the entrance of the metro station was none other than the world-famous violinist Joshua Bell. Just three days earlier, Bell had filled Boston Symphony Hall where the average ticket cost $100. And two weeks later, he would perform at the Strathmore to a standing room only crowd. 1,097 people would walk by Joshua Bell 
playing a 43-minute concert. And out of the 1,097 people who passed by, only seven stopped to listen. Seven. Bell's Metro Station performance was part of an experiment that was put together by the Washington Post. It was an experiment to examine how our context and our perception, our priorities and our expectations shape our judgment and our behaviors. Friday morning rush hour was an unexpected time. Lunfont Metro Station was an unexpected place for a world-class concert. Joshua Bell wasn't dressed the part. There were no flyers. There were no announcements. There was no fanfare. And as a result, 1,090 people missed the performance of a lifetime and front row seats to it. We have before us this morning an account that is no doubt very familiar to most of you. Matthew tells here of the events surrounding the birth of Jesus. And what we see is that the Messiah's birth was in many ways unexpected. Jesus was born to a poor couple, insignificant by the world's standards. He was born not in Jerusalem or any other major metropolis, but in the little town of Bethlehem. He was not born in a palace, fit for a king. But as Luke would tell us, he was born and spent his first nights in a cattle stall. Very little about Jesus' birth spoke of kingship, much less divine kingship. And as a result, when the day has finally come, The day when the Godhead veiled himself in human flesh, came to this earth as the savior of sinners, this day that had been longed for and prayed for and hoped for for generations after generations after generation, this day when it finally came was missed. It was missed. Far too many missed Jesus. Jesus was ignored. Jesus was rejected by the very people who should have been the first to recognize him and the first to honor him and the first to bow down and worship. Jesus was missed. That's what I want you to see. Jesus was rejected, but not by everyone. Not by everyone. We meet in our text the Magi, And I want you to see that the Magi are arguably the least likely worshipers of a Jewish Messiah, but they're here, worshiping God's Christ. God, we see, raises up worshipers. God raises up worshipers from the most unlikely of places to come and to adore his son, the Christ child. Central to Matthew's gospel is this all-important question. Jesus puts it to his disciples in chapter 16. But who do you say that I am? It's a question that really resonates throughout the entire gospel, and it's a question that's put to us even here at the very beginning. Who do you say 
that I am. It's a question that is as important today, 2,000 years later, as it was in the days when Jesus asked it. We find here at the very beginning different responses to Jesus. We see it in Herod. We see it in the religious leaders. And we see it in the Magi. And I want to consider each of these responses in turn. Herod. In Herod, we see the response to Jesus of fear and of anger. We're told in verse 3 that when King Herod heard that the child was born king of the Jews, he was troubled. And that word here translated troubled is uh, it's a bit of a, an understatement, really. It refers to a deep mental and spiritual agitation. It refers to being shaken to the very core of your being. It's the word that Jesus would use in John chapter 12 when he speaks about the death he is about to suffer on the cross and he cries out, my soul is troubled. Herod was troubled at the news of one born king of the Jews. This was not the perhaps understandable response that we might expect of any king when he hears that a rival king is born. This is the response of someone whose kingdom is threatened. Herod's anger, you see, was not a mistake. It was not the result of a misunderstanding or a miscommunication. What we, we can see this in Herod's question when he asks the scribes and the chief priests, where is the Christ to be born? Do you hear it? He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's asking for. He wants to know where the Messiah would be born the long-promised savior of God's people. And why? So that he might kill him. Herod was filled with anger and rage because he knows that the kingdom of God threatens the kingdoms of men. And that includes his petty little kingdom. Herod's anger turns into violence as he seeks the location of this Christ child in order to kill him. And in so doing, he stands in a very long line of kings who would destroy Israel. At the time of Jesus' birth, Herod was quite old. And throughout his reign, he could be characterized as a, as a particularly brutal and violent king. Scholars say that it was towards the end of his life and at the end of his reign that he became particularly paranoid and excessively violent. By this time, Herod had murdered three sons, one wife, one mother-in-law, and countless high officials. On account of his excessive cruelty and violence, Herod was almost universally despised by his subjects, so despised that he ordered a great number of nobles to be executed upon his own death. Why? Because he wanted to be sure that someone would shed a tear. 
It's perhaps no surprise that when Herod flies into a rage, all of Jerusalem is troubled along with him. Why? Why? Because Herod, like so many kings who have gone before, was not a good shepherd. Was not a good shepherd. Rather, in Herod we see a desperate play to preserve his own kingship and his own kingdom. And in this we see the, yet one more iteration of the rage of this, that great serpent of old against the seed of the woman. We've seen it before. Throughout Israel's history, there have been kings and rulers who have sought to destroy Israel. Who comes readily to mind? It's the Pharaoh in the days of Moses, right? The Pharaoh who would destroy Israel by throwing her baby boys into the Nile. Herod is one more iteration of the seed of the serpent, like the kings in Psalm 2. The kings who gather together against the Lord and against his anointed. There is no joy in Herod. There's no hope in Herod. And there's no peace. There is anger. There is fear. And this ushers forth in, vi- uh, in violence. Desperate violence to maintain his own fading kingship. Brothers and sisters, what I want you to see is that in Herod, we see the human heart set in full display. A heart that says, I would rather that Christ should die than that I should give up my kingdom, my autonomy, my freedom, my life. And yet in this cry, we fail to remember that what we call freedom is in fact slavery to sin. And what we regard as life is in fact death. Few of us have kingdoms like Herod's, but we all have places, those places in our lives, whether they be the things of this world, whether they be habits of of heart or habits of mind, things that Christ would have us give up that we might gain. And so we too can respond like Herod. But in contrast to Herod, we meet in the stable in Bethlehem another king, don't we? A king whose kingdom is not of this world, where Herod is a king who would gladly and did gladly sacrifice the lives of his own people in order to secure his own kingship. In this Christ child, we meet a king like no other, like no other king Israel had ever had a king who was willing to lay down his life for his sheep. In Herod, we see a man who would seek to secure his glory at all costs. And in Christ, we see a king who gave up the glories of heaven that he might redeem sinners like you and me. In humility, the son of God would come to earth. He would be born in a manger the meanness of which prefigured the cross on which he would one day die for sins he didn't commit. The innocent for the guilty, the righteous for the unrighteous. 
Well, perhaps even more surprising than Herod's response to the birth of the Messiah is the response we see in the religious leaders. The chief priests and the scribes, it's striking that when asked where the Christ, the Messiah, was to be born, the scribes and chief priests answer without delay. They don't consult their Bibles. In Bethlehem in Judea, they give the correct answer. But notice what they do. What do they do? They do nothing. Bethlehem is just five miles away. The chief priests and the scribes could have walked there in an afternoon. But what do they do? They don't even bother to go and to see. It's difficult to know why exactly. Uh, We're not told explicitly. Perhaps they doubted that the news of the Messiah would come from pagan magi. Perhaps they feared Herod's reprisals should they go and see. Or perhaps they were just comfortable. Perhaps they were comfortable in their current positions within the Herodian administration and don't want to do anything to rock the boat. But whatever their motivations, at the end of the day, what we can say with certainty is that what we see in the Jewish religious leaders is ambivalence. It's ambivalence. The ironic tragedy in all of this is that these are the religious leaders, the very ones who should be the first to know, the first to find out, the first to go and to lead Israel to their Messiah in worship and adoration. Yet though they know all the right answers, their actions suggest that they were disinterested in a Messiah born in Bethlehem and the kingdom which he is bringing. Consider, by contrast, the Magi. How much did the Magi know? I would submit to you all precious little. They were outsiders, figuring out the best they could who this Messiah is and where he would be born so that they might come and pay homage to him. And yet, the religious leaders of the Jewish people who had been given so very much display a staggering, staggering reluctance to go and see. And it is a reluctance that will eventually turn into what? Hostility. And it is a hostility that will eventually turn into what? Murder. There's a, I think, parallel, striking parallel with the story of Jonah. You know the story of Jonah, right? Where the pagans of Nineveh, upon hearing what is arguably the worst sermon ever preached, (laughs) repent completely in dust and ashes from top to bottom of society. And yet Israel, to whom belong in the words of the Apostle Paul, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the law, the worship, the patriarchs, the promise. What privilege does Israel ever repent like Nineveh? So Jesus would declare to them in Matthew chapter 12 that the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it for they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. 
When outward privilege is not met with inward faith, it only serves to blind the eyes, to dull the ears, and to harden the hearts of those who should be first to see and to hear and to believe. Brothers and sisters, there is a sobering warning in this for all of us. It's a warning against presumption. It's a warning against thinking that because I've professed the Christian faith, because I know the answers, or I perform the rituals because I'm associated with the church, that therefore I know Christ and Christ knows me. These scribes knew their Bibles better than any one of us could ever hope to know our Bibles. I assure you of this. Many of them had it all memorized. They knew their Bibles forwards and backwards. The chief priest's job was to represent the people of God in the presence of God daily, to perform sacrifices with precision, to offer instruction and guidance according to Torah. These were men who lived and moved and had their being in Israel's religion, and yet they missed the very one who stood at its center. It's possible to do this. And it's a warning for us all. Jesus would later rebuke the religious leaders saying, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but they bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So, let me ask you this. Do you know Christ? Not do you know about Christ or do you know about Christianity? Not do you know your Bible or do you know theology? Are you a member of the church? As good as all of these things are and as important as they all are, they are not the most important thing. But do you know Christ? Are you trusting Christ today? Not did you trust Christ 20 years ago, but are you trusting him today? On whom are you hoping and for whom are you living? When we cease to trust Christ, we become ambivalent. Our awe can turn into ambivalence and our wonder can turn into presumption. And we are all susceptible. What is the remedy? The remedy is Christ himself. The living, breathing, spirit-filled, spirit-giving Christ who is yours and mine by faith. He offers himself to all of us and he says, I may be yours by faith alone. Are you trusting Christ? Churches fail. Leaders fail. You and I fail ourselves but Christ will never fail you in Herod and in the chief priests we meet two pillars of Israel's faith the king and the priests and we see that both of them miss the Messiah who came to bring light and life to a sin darkened world the very ones 
who should have been the first to know, the first to bow, the first to worship, missed the Christ. Reflecting on his concert at the metro station, Joshua Bell noted that there were six particularly painful and awkward moments. They were the moments when he finished his pieces and his performance was met with silence. Not something he was used to. Performance, uh, finishes a performance, a brilliant performance of a brilliant piece and nothing. I think we would all agree that there's something deeply inappropriate about that situation. Oh, commenting on God's purposes for these magi, one pastor put it like this, that God would not suffer his son to go unadored. God would not suffer his son to go unadored. In the very next chapter, John the Baptist will denounce the presumption of the religious leaders saying, do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father for I tell you God is able to raise up from these stones children of Abraham. Perhaps even more surprising than children of Abraham being raised up from dead stones are the magi from the east. This brings us to our last point. We see in the Magi the response of worship and adoration. It's a response of faith, faith that may be seen in their worship and that gives expression in their adoration. We don't know much about these Magi, though you would never guess based on the stories that we hear every season. Uh, the familiar hymn, We Three Kings of Orient Are, gets just about everything wrong. They were not kings in any meaningful sense. They were magi. We don't know that there were three of them. Uh, we know that there were three gifts, and I think we presume that there were three of them, but Matthew makes no mention of how many there were. And while it is true, that they were from the Orient. Actually, all of the characters in this story are from the Orient. And so it's, it's not, not quite as helpful as it might seem. We do know this, though, that these Magi are arguably the least likely worshipers of Jesus in the entire world. And we mustn't allow our sentimentality and speculation to cloud the plain truth that these were men who were experts in astral worship, demonology, and all manner of dark arts. And yet already what we see is Christ triumphing. Do you see it? Christ is triumphing over the powers and principalities of this present evil age right here at the very beginning. Baby Jesus plundering the occult, conquering Satan's kingdom. These are Satan's champions here making their way to the foot of a manger to worship the one true and living God. It is astounding It is staggering. 
God was pleased to lead these magi to the bedside of the Messiah. They traveled great distances and they took on great expense in order to just worship this Christ child. They are led by a star. The exact nature of the star is difficult to discern, but what we can see in the star that guided the Magi is this. God's unwavering purpose, his willingness to literally move heaven and earth in order to raise up worshipers of his son. Even though the king and the religious leaders who should have known better refused to go and worship, God says, I will accomplish my purposes. Even the tragedy of the son being rejected by his own people becomes the occasion for God to bring in the nations. What begins with a just a trickle here with the Magi will one day become a torrent as the Gentiles are brought into the kingdom of God. So in this way, as Paul says in Romans chapter 11, all Israel, Jew and Gentile alike, will be saved. Though probably unclear about the nature of Jesus' mission, It's striking that the Magi bring gifts appropriate for his life, don't they? They bring gold, of course, a symbol of royalty appropriate to Jesus' kingly office. And they bring frankincense. This is an incense associated with the work of the priest making sacrifices to God and I think is suggestive of Jesus' priestly office. And they bring myrrh. Uh, It's a spice that was used as a perfume, but it was a spice that was also used for the burial of the dead. When Jesus died, Joseph and Nicodemus would bring 75 pounds of myrrh to anoint his dead body, a gift suggestive of Jesus' mission as the man born to die. The Magi understood enough, though, They understood enough about the significance of this Messiah, enough about his identity, his mission, that they would bring to him the worship and the honor, the adoration and the glory that he alone deserves. Fear and anger, doubt and ambivalence, worship and adoration. Three responses. Matthew, many have pointed out, is recording these responses for us as a way to invite us to find ourselves. Where do you find yourself this morning? Because the announcement that Jesus has been born, King of the Jews, inevitably evokes a response, and perhaps you're here today, and even the name of Jesus evokes an anger, if not a hatred, Perhaps because his kingdom threatens your kingdom. And if this, if this describes you, what you need to hear is that Jesus' kingship is a kingship of peace. It's a peace like no other peace. No peace that can be wrought by any human kingdom. Jesus came to bring peace. 
So that peace and that security that we so often seek in our own efforts at kingdom building, whether it be through achievement or popularity, wealth or pleasure or education or anything else, that peace and that security that we long for and can never achieve, Jesus says, I give it to you. My peace I give to you. And Jesus invites us, all of us, to an eternal kingdom characterized by peace. Or perhaps you see yourself not so much reflected in King Herod, but in the religious leaders. As those who have grown ambivalent towards the hope that things will ever get better. Or ambivalent towards the good news that God will make all things new. Matthew's message for you is don't miss out. Don't miss out. It's not enough to just come to church. It's not enough to just know your Bible and theology as wonderful as these things are. But if they are not accompanied by faith in the risen Christ, they are of no value. The remedy for a heart that has grown dull is not another word, not another good news. God doesn't say, oh, you're bored with that good news? Here's something else for you. He says, no, return. Return to the good news because there is no better news than that Christ has died for sinners and has risen has ascended into heaven and has promised that he will one day return. There is no better news you will hear. But the goal, of course, is for all of us to respond with the Magi. To respond to the announcement of one born king of the Jews. We're told in verse 11 that when they saw the child with his mother, they fell down and they worshiped. They fell down and they worshiped. We are to be those who come recognizing who Jesus is, the King and the Savior of the world. And the response of faith is to fall to our knees in worship. It is the only response that's appropriate. Appropriate to the gifts that we have been given, the gift which we could never earn and we could never repay, not in a million lifetimes. Certainly the Magi's gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, these were kind, these were appropriate gestures, but the Son of God did not leave the glories of heaven for gold and for frankincense and myrrh. There's plenty of gold where he came from. The Son of God came to earth for the one thing that he did not have, and that was sinners reconciled to a holy God. For that reason, the Son of God took on human flesh and tabernacled among us that he might present us pure, spotless, and blameless before his fathers. He left heaven to make those who are by nature haters of God, worshipers of God. And from the manger to the cross, to the empty tomb, to the ascension, Jesus was at work, drawing all men, all women, all children to himself. His sheep heard his voice, and they continue to hear it, even today, as God continues to call to Christ the least and the lowliest, the most unlikely of worshipers. 
If the message of the religious leaders is a warning against presumption, the message of the Magi is a warning against exclusion. No one is excluded. Christ's blood is sufficient for every sin and for every sinner who would turn to him in faith. If God can draw Magi to the foot of a manger, he can draw anybody. Don't give up on anyone in your life but pray. And don't give up on yourself as you are tempted to think, as I am tempted to think at times, that Christ's blood could not reach even me. The message of the Magi is that Christ's blood is sufficient for all. And may God grant, therefore, each of us that humility, that wonder, and that all that is born of faith that would lead us to worship a baby in a manger and a king on a cross. Please pray with me. Our Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, a gift that we wonder to behold and would pray that you would only deepen our wonder, that we might often find ourselves worshiping you, adoring you, and rendering unto you the glory and the honor that you alone deserve. Our Father, we pray that you would bless us with your spirit and work in us an ever-deepening faith that we might know you, know your Christ whom you sent, and walk closely with you all of our days. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.